You're listening to Coffee Talk with the Liturgy Guys. Excuse me. I happen to be passing. I thought you might like some coffee. Oh, that's very nice of you. Thank you. Because if beer is proof of God's love for us, then coffee is proof of his mercy. Oremus, caffeine, come to my assistance. Oh. Put that coffee down. This is not a real episode of the Literature Guys. Coffee's for closes only. There's no topic that we're discussing, and we're not even talking about liturgy the whole time. Are you telling us absolutely everything? Not exactly. We're also out of coffee. <laughs> so without further ado, another Coffee Talk episode of the Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. Oh, oh, hey, Dennis. Yo, Jesse. It's, uh, as we should do another coffee talk. The last one was pretty nice. Yeah, that was all about Benedictine and la, 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 my life is great. Now let's talk about how terrible your <laughs> life is via Carl Rahner. Well, you know, you wouldn't be the first person who thinks the idea of reading an article by Carl, Carl Rahner would be adding to the terribleness of their life. Not only because, you know, people have preconceived ideas about Carl Rahner, the Jesuit theologian of the 20th century but also because he's famously hard to read. His dense, dense German, long sentences as Germans often do. There's an old joke, and I don't know how true it is, but people would say to his brother, Hugo Runner, who was also a fairly well-known theologian, um, is it hard to translate uh, your brother's work into English? And he said, it's hard to translate it into German, which you know, was the original language. <laughs> and so, but that's, that's part of the, the deal when you're really, really brilliant and you know a lot of things. It's hard to make simplistic statements, especially in Germany where their, their level of uh, academic sophistication is so high. They, they just don't allow you to toss off claims that you can't support. And so, especially then, he was uh, a great mind. And he was one of the great minds with a whole other bunch of other great minds. You think about how God gave us in the 20th century these amazing theologians that were kind of centuries in the making de Lubac and Balthazar and Yves Congar and uh, lots of people like that. And he was one of them. Now, Jesse. Well, well, first I have a question though. Yeah. Uh, so if he's so, you know, loquacious in his writings about stuff, is there a, a uh, connection to, like you say, in, in uh, the architecture world, gilding the, li- or, uh, gilding the lily? What was it? Yeah, gilding the lily. That's like you're making it so complex that it's just you actually lose what's happening there. I know you talk about this in the architecture world, but is there is it relatable to that aspect of gilding the lily? You talk about, you know, if, if you have something that has detail, but you just put it 100% in gold, you kind of lose some of the detail there? Yeah, I don't know if that's the case intentionally, but... Some people know so much they have a hard time saying anything simply. Plus, the German system doesn't let you off the hook very easily. You know, Cardinal Ratzinger, of course, is even as Pope Benedict, a great mind, but he has this gift for simplicity of, of writing. And I don't think he's a lesser intellect than Rahner, but he has a gift for simplicity of writing, and Rahner didn't. So that makes sense to me. Yeah. You're just trying to get everything out, you're trying to explain it. I mean, uh, I've had some conversations with some pretty hefty academics here, like Matthew Levering, and you try to read some of what, and it just he he just is a fountain of knowledge, you know. And, and sometimes it's hard to get out of your own way. You have to define your terms. You have to make sure if you have a subtlety of understanding, you have to make sure the other person understands the terms the same way, and you have to insert all these clauses, which is to say, or to define it as thus. And it's sometimes, I mean, this is not a problem I have, but to be a super duper genius is sometimes a real. 
I definitely don't have that problem. <laughs> so what uh, what did you want to talk about specifically in regard to Carl, Carl Rahner? Well, here I am teaching at the Liturgical Institute Summer School, a course called Sacramental Aesthetics. And Sacramental Aesthetics, from the name, as you might guess, is about aesthetics, which is perception. Aestheticos in Greek means literally just sense perception. But sacraments, how do you perceive sacraments? Because sacraments are made of matter, right? But they're also matter that's revealing an invisible spiritual reality. So it's a study of there are these things of God that are invisible, and yet we're supposed to be able to perceive them with our senses. And the way that's done traditionally is through symbol. As we, you know, as we talk about this, Chris loves to talk about symbol line, right? The Greek mm -hmm. to throw together. What it means is the invisible idea and the visible manifestation are thrown together in one place. And so Rahner, whether you like his later work, whether you like his anonymous Christian stuff or, or whatever, that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about this article that he wrote that was really about the nature of the symbol, as I like to say. What's your favorite word, DMAC? Ontology. An ontology, right? Because people use the word symbol even today. If you tell someone, is the Eucharist a symbol? And, you, and they say yes. Or if you ask them, and you know, they ask you and you say yes, they'll probably mad. Is the Eucharist just a symbol? No, no, it's a sacrament. Well, yes. the, the way we talk <laughs> about symboline as the throwing of two things together, that's the same word. Mm -hmm. And Rahner was the one really trying to recover the word symbol to mean something deep and important and sacrament. Whereas most people would say, oh, I hung a picture, you know, like a fleur-de-lis on the wall of my church and I put up a symbol of Mary. Well, you didn't really. You put up a fleur-de-lis, which kind of refers you to Mary. Is that the same thing as Mary showing up in your you know, room as a mystical <laughs> vision? Probably not. One is a reminder, and one makes Mary present and active. It's like the picture of the Eucharist is a reminder that the Eucharist exists. But when you have the Eucharist, it's real and active and present. And he was really trying to get behind um, this notion. And it was, you know, answering some of the people in the 20th century. There was something called the manualist tradition or the mm. sawdust Thomism. And uh, it, like if you went to seminary in 1920, probably you'd be reading books about the sacraments written by people who were kind of summarizing them into little tidbits of things to memorize, you know, theological terms and you know, scientific terminology. And what all these 20th century people were not happy with was, we were learning all these terms, but we weren't learning about God breaking into the world and communicating himself to us through his presence to transform us by divine life. You know, these things that we talk about all the time. Yeah, some of that's happening today. You know, we talk about discipleship and evangelization and, yeah, that's awesome. Let's do it. Let's keep doing that. But what's the end goal, right? right? Are we right. talking about that sacramental life? Is mm -hmm. that how we're discipling people? Mm -hmm. Right. So there were a whole bunch of, of, of great scholars at the time. Some were what's called the Nouvelle Theologie or the New Theology. Uh, the resourcement movement was going at the same time where people were looking at the sources again, not just reading books about what Thomas said, but actually reading Thomas and actually reading the, the patristic, the early church fathers, um, and to really get a sense of what's the authentic notion of everything again. Well, what is Eucharist? If it had been the subject of debates between Protestants and Catholics for 300 years, and is it the real presence or not? It's an important question. But if that's all you've got, then you, what you're not doing is entering into the Eucharist as an act. You're not entering into the mystical body, offering itself to the Father. You're just arguing about whether the host is the real presence or not. And again, not a bad question, but there's a lot more than that. So. Is there a hierarchy to sacramental understanding? Is that kind of what I'm gathering here? Well, that's what they wanted to recover. So, you know, I'm a sacrament of Jesus for you if 
you know, I put a Band-Aid on your knee when you <laughs> fall off your bike, right? I'm a, in some way, I'm Christ the healer, but not in the fullness as if Christ himself came down and laid his hands on you and filled you with his divine life, right? So you, it's not that sacramentality is either or. There's a kind of full existence of active and present reality of Christ, and then there's different grades and different gradations of it. They're all fundamentally the same thing. They're God's self-communication. He communicates through the scriptures. He communicates through the seven sacraments of the church. He communicates through you every now and again, Jesse. <laughs> Probably well, that, one could only hope, I guess, all the time for your wife and your kids, right? When you're especially, you know, on your worst day, you're still, you are a guardian and someone who. Well, loves I'm glad your we children. didn't do this podcast two weeks ago. <laughs> that was a worst day for me. So, but on your best day, you're even more like Christ as you're patient and loving and teaching your kids and taking care of them. That's a tough parents. concept to grasp, right? Because, uh, you know, I, I think that we are attracted to things that are finite and be like you can rank things and say this is this this is that in the church and theology and philosophy certainly doesn't revolve around that type of realm there's not a lot of finiteness in some of those things um and and you know i think probably people would want to say well like how much grace do i get from a devotion as yeah. opposed to the eucharist right and so uh, it's hard to know it is hard to know but but i do i do like that there is a hierarchy and that there mm -hmm. is an order and um, I mean that's certainly some of the stuff that we talk about the liturgical institute right. it sounds like Ronner is kind of on that track too well he has this immense brain that he's not just good at synthesizing what other people say he found this problem which is we don't know what a symbol is we put a picture of the sacred heart on the wall of a church and we that's how he starts and is it a symbol is it a sacrament is it a sign is it just a referral to Jesus's heart somewhere does it render something present? These are the kinds of questions that people just Or toss. why does it matter? Why does it matter, <laughs> right? So, and how does it relate to God, right? If God is by definition made up of three persons and they communicate with each other, is that the same way that he communicates with us because Christ also has humanity? So if you think, I said this in class today, if you think someone asks you to write a master's thesis or a doctoral thesis and you want to answer First of all, you have to identify in a question that's so important that nobody has thought about it for 400 years. Then you're going to come up with an answer <laughs> that will then become the defining defining answer for the next 100 years. And you have the answer. That's, that's kind of an amazing thing. Things like that don't happen uh, too often. And so there are a lot of people who are down on Runner because there are people who don't agree with everything theologically he said. I think this article that we're talking about is, is pretty safe. Um, safe business. I don't even agree with 100% of what you say. So. Yeah, well, neither do I. But <laughs> sometimes I just say stuff. You know, you know, that's why I always have to edit these podcasts before you release so them. What, so what did he do to kind of standardize that for us? Well, the first thing he said is the concept of symbol is much more complex and difficult than most people think. So if you were to say, is the Eucharist a symbol? And people say, no. Well, Yes, but. Yeah, <laughs> yes, but. So we're talking about symbol and partly because of him as something very high, very important. And then he had to talk about the inner workings of it. So he had three basic points and four basic points in this article, which is very, very hard to read. And people always lament that they have to read Rana for class. But he says, all beings by their nature are symbolic because they necessarily express themselves in order to attain their own nature. All right. Did you get that? No, I did not. <laughs> all beings are necessarily symbolic because they necessarily express themselves in order to attain their own nature. Okay, so think about a sacrament, right? There's an invisible spiritual reality, and then there's a tangible 
earthly material reality. Is that the expression? Yeah. So that's okay. the expressing of the idea. So the idea is invisible. It's not in this world. But then it expresses in matter. And so I, I wear a, a suit and a tie. That's expressing that there, I'm about to attend something more, on right, more formal. But that would be at a secondary level. Just okay. the fact that you're here at all oh, okay. means that there's some idea in the mind of God of you. Mm, oh, wow. Okay. Just the fact that you are knowable means that in matter, the invisible reality of you is being expressed by the very nature of things that are. So it says all beings. That means anything that is by nature expresses itself, symbolizes itself, renders itself present. And if you don't, then you're not you, right? So a symbol isn't, in this case, just like hanging a picture of something on the wall. It's the basic way that things work. To be is to be knowable. It's by definition. So it's necessary to, in order to be what you are, you have to express what you are. If you don't express what you are, then you're not. Because by definition, things that are have an invisible quality, but then they also have a visible expression. And this is true for all things. Everything that that exists by definition, or you could say ontologically by their own nature, has the power to express itself. So how is that different? So we we talked about... uh, uh, you know, how all things can be sanctified, right? So how does that differ between myself, who is made in the image and likeness of God, Mm -hmm. and an inanimate object like, you know, creation or, you know. A rock. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Well, a rock expresses rockness, right? Mm -hmm. Now it just expresses less. So if you think about a thermometer and say you go from 10 degrees to 100 degrees, a rock might be hanging around in, you know, 15 degrees, but it still has the power <laughs> to be expressed because we can see it, right? There's an invisible idea called rockness, and in the Platonic world, they would have said that was like the form. In the Christian world, we say it's the mind of God. That's where ideas reside. And then those ideas are expressed in matter. So imagine you're an artist, and someone gives you a lump of clay, and you have an idea in your head. I'm going to make a portrait bust of Jesse in a mm-hmm. heroic pose like Julius Caesar. There's an idea in the artist's head, and it's intangible. And so it hasn't come into being yet in fullness. But when it does, when that idea, which is Mm. intangible, combines with matter, then you have the thing expressing itself. And they're both necessary. And without one or the other, it's not fully expressed. So a rock will have a lesser degree of fullness of existence. And there's there's a couple of ways that that has been measured, according to Thomas Aquinas. and, And the good old Bishop Barron taught me this many years ago that things which participate in being, which is what we're talking about, um, to the degree that they can um, know itself and express itself in someone else. Right? Hmm. So a rock can be imaged in your brain because you can look at it, but it can't make a picture of itself. Okay. Not to get too philosophical here. Oh, but, that's what we're talking about today. But <laughs> but this idea, you know, that whole thing, like if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? You know, mm-hmm. this. so if there's nothing to witness this expression, yep. is it still that sacramental sign? Well, that's the question. Is the sound primarily located in your mind or is the sound located in the world? And this is the modern versus mm-hmm. classical argument. Someone in the Thomistic system or what they call the realist tradition would probably say there is nothing that is unperceived because God always perceives mm, everything. Okay. 
And so therefore there is nothing that is unperceived. However, it might not be real for you if you don't perceive it, but it doesn't mean it's not real. If I make a statue and put it in a dark closet and you never see it, it's not less real. It's just, it hasn't been encountered by. So if we have, so we have like a, a, a very holy person who's a hermit. They just mm-hmm. basically spend their whole life alone, right? Yep. And, you know, they're, they are a sacrament of, you know, of in and of themselves. They mm-hmm. are being sanctified, being made holy. Mm-hmm. But if nobody perceives them because they don't encounter them, is it, is, I don't want to say the word less, but like, is it, is it? <laughs> I mean, the hermit's job is to be a hermit. Right. That doesn't mean they never see anybody, but their job is to go out and pray and be alone to have a silence that away from the distractions of the world so that they can know more things. And usually hermits have people who come to them for spiritual direction or they write letters or they write books or something. Mm-hmm. So, so there can be an encounter through Christ through them in those ways. Right. It's not totally. Absolutely. And even if they never saw anybody, but they were calling down graces on the world, you know, someone might not that know. That goes into the camp of God, the perceiver, right? God, the perceiver. Okay. And I so like someone it. across the world might say, Oh, I was going to kill myself, but maybe I, I won't now, right? They might not know where that knowledge mm. came from, that grace came from, but they'll perceive it and they'll stop that plan. So they might, you know, there's always perceived, I guess. Yeah, Father Ed Pellwright, who we both know, um, was telling me about how uh, he celebrates Mass for the Carmelites and they're cloistered. And mm-hmm. he says they're fervently praying for all of the seminarians here. Right. You know what I mean? And, and uh, there's... There's an effect to yeah. that, right? And maybe somebody would have given in to despair in a cold February mm-hmm. day in Chicago yeah. and said, I'm going to leave seminary, but maybe they didn't because of somebody's prayer. Or maybe they left because they weren't supposed to be a priest, you know? Right. And, right. Um, wow. So what we were saying before is the things that participate in being have the most capacity to image itself more perfectly and most internally, right? So God can know himself in his own mind perfectly. And then he images himself most perfectly, which is what or who? Christ. Yeah. So a rock can't really know itself, although it can be imaged in somebody else's mind. So it's not so much an objectively different thing as much as it is um, a greater capacity or what they call participation. So a plant can be seen by your eyeballs, but it can also make seeds and image itself by making more plants. Uh, an animal can actually hold things in its imagination, which a plant can't do, right? If you ever mm-hmm. see a dog having a dream, and you wonder if it's chasing Oh, yeah, is it like run, running? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've seen yeah. that. And then a human, of course, can make more humans, but they can also, like a plant can't make a sculpture of itself, whereas a human could do a self-portrait. And then angels, you know, have more perfectly internal knowledge of themselves, uh, but they're still a creature they can't really. Again, this kind of gets the hierarchy thing. Right, so it's good and better. There's no such thing as absence of good, really, if, if you exist, because you're always participating in God's being. So this is the kind of stuff Reiner is interested in. All right, so how does this work? A symbol, if it's really going to be a breaking in of God, has a pre-existing godness, share in being, and then somehow it gets knowable in the world, accessible in the world. And so if you're going to be a symbol, you have to be able to express this invisible reality that pre-exists, that reality taking shape. So everything symbolizes itself. Hmm. You symbolize Jesse. This is like making my mind explode. Well, right that's, now. <laughs> that's that's the good thing about it. And reading it is very hard. But. You know, I've, I've been uh, one of the good things about our online study program is that it allows us to explore liturgical and sacramental principles beyond our curriculum. And that's the that's one of the things I love about these online courses is that 
we don't have a discipleship and liturgy course or section in our curriculum, but we can have somebody like James Pauley discuss some of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been talking to some people recently. I would love to have a philosophy and liturgy course. I don't even know what that would be or what it, what it would look like or yeah. how the structures would be. But I do know that if sacramental theology is the foundation of, I believe, all theology, dare I say. And uh, philosophy is the handmaid of liturgy, yeah. So, I mean, I think that it's just another side uh, through which we can look at sacramental right. life. And yeah. so... Uh, well, this, this is why Thomas was so dependent on Aristotle, because he mm-hmm. talked about things like act and potency and matter and form. And Chris used the word hylomorphic. That's an Aristotelian mm-hmm. term. So if you're going to talk about Jesus being human and divine, you have to start talking about natures. What's a nature? And how do you determine it? I mean, these are philosophical questions. It's us. important because, that, cause honestly, if we're going to be real about all of these things revolving around the liturgy. If you, if you you have your average liturgist uh, or liturgiologist who knows these things and is trying to do them in your parish, the biggest response to those changes or things that they're trying to do is why. Mm-hmm. And it's a fundamental uh, error that we don't know. Yeah. And so... And then and, it just looks like the imposition of someone's will over someone else's will. Right. As it, opposed to let's have a common understanding. So Thomas says the mind rests... In understanding, it works in lack of understanding. Why, 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 why? What, what, what? How do I find out? Oh, I get it. You see, that's a rest. Right. So now I'm thinking, like my mind's jumping to how effective experiential knowledge is. And so how can you have yep. experience, experiential, gosh, experiential knowledge? Is that, they say that right? You did. Gosh. You know, you ever get hung up on a word? You're like, is that how mm-hmm. it's um, How can you do that or experience this knowledge philosophically that's well that's the liturgical jacuzzi right there's <laughs> oh, yeah, no philosophical right. knowledge by sitting in a jacuzzi but you get knowledge and it's very direct and experiential then you say what is that thing i went in that jacuzzi and it felt good i went in that jacuzzi and it felt cold so maybe one of them needs more heat and then the, the mind starts coming in how can we make the most perfect thing but you see you can start with the abstract knowledge or you can start with experiential knowledge but either way experiential knowledge experiential knowledge is really a helpful way to start and then you can start asking these fussy runarian questions about <laughs> how does this all work. And, but let me ask you this, Jesse. If everything that symbolizes itself is participating in being and is made of these two parts, what would you use for the basis for that? It's got unity, but it's got plurality or multiplicity at the same time, and it's not deficient. Uh, well, I can think of two answers. Uh, the Eucharist is one answer. Well, that's a yeah, that's a sacrament, but even that's participating in something higher. <laughs> but the but the Trinity, absolutely right. So that's what Ron is saying. But if that the, Trinity has triality. It does <laughs> multiplicity. So he says everything is plural in its unity, which is another crazy kind of philosophical statement. Everything that symbolizes something is plural in its unity. So the the idea of you and the manifestation of you are coexisting in you, right? You as an idea and you as a person are the same. And if you're not, then something's wrong. So if God has an image in his mind of you and you look like Angelina Jolie, something's (laughs) something's not right. As good as Angelina Jolie looks, you're not supposed to look like her. The son has the perfect image of the father. Mm -hmm. And so God internally knows himself most perfectly and therefore um, replicates himself most perfectly in a one-to-one ratio. But we're not perfect compared to God's mind. 
you, know, you might have an idea for your daughter, like Agnes. I wish she would grow up and not, you know, beat Isaac or, or mm-hmm. cry or throw a tantrum. She's a sweet kid. I've never seen her do anything. You know, she's got like a three-week good streak going on. <laughs> I was talking to Kim about that last night. I was mm. like, don't say anything. Mm. She's been pretty good lately. Yeah. <laughs> but you see the perfection of her, and you have to kind of train her to grow into the, the perfect, more perfect version of herself. So God sort of knows that in his mind, and then you want that to be externalized in yourself. So there's a plurality, the idea of you, and then the reality of you. Now, the difference is what makes a sacrament, if a sacrament is a kind of symbol, what makes a sacrament different from everything sacramentalizing itself? So you have the bread before Mass, and it's symbolizing breadness, right? What makes it different from a symbol? What makes a sacrament different from a symbol? Christ. Yeah. Then you work it inside. It's a sacrament symbolizes something more than itself, right? So the Eucharist mm-hmm. looks like bread, and it symbolizes or sacramentalizes the, the symbolizes bread. The, the duality or the plurality, like you're saying, yeah. right? Reiner calls it an overplus of meaning. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it's a, probably a transliteration from the German, an, an überplus or something, an overplus. So normally things have their own meaning, and that's okay. Cheeseburger symbolizes cheeseburger. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Car symbolizes car. That's great. But then you get bread that not only symbolizes bread, but something more than bread. It becomes the bearer of presence. And so this is when the sacrament bursts into being something beyond only mm-hmm. itself. Now, you could have a picture of bread that doesn't, even, that doesn't make bread present. It's a reminder. That'd be a sign. Then you could have actual bread, which symbolizes itself, which is bread. It makes bread present. But then in the Eucharist, there's bread present and there's something more. Uh, and this is how a sacrament is different from a symbol generally and how a si- symbol is different from a sign. Is this the same thing true for a sacramental? Well, sacramentals are things that dispose you for proper reception of a sacrament. So okay. they prepare you to receive the sacrament. They don't make the sacrament. Present. But you have oil, which is like chrism oil. Mm-hmm. It's oil, but isn't that oil plus uh, the breath of the Holy Spirit in it, you know? Well, the oil would be used in the sacrament. Oil by itself is not a sacrament. Okay. It's used in the sacrament of uh, baptism or confirmation. It's it's the combination of things. Um, but people talk about a rosary or a scapular. You know, scapular isn't making God present in the full way like the Eucharist is. Mm-hmm. But when you put it on, it's not like a magic amulet. It's just, oh, this is an outward sign of my devotion. It reminds me of my love for God and it opens me up to receive uh, his love. So there's lots of other complicated stuff, but he makes the point, everything that exists has two parts, an idea and an expression. A symbol has correspondence between the idea and the expression. That's how it makes itself present. You make yourself present by being here. And if Mm -hmm. you didn't have expression in materiality, you wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. Or if your material expression didn't correspond to the idea of you, you wouldn't be here. That these two have to be there and they have to be the same, but it doesn't make you less you. So he's talking about constituent elements, like a thing is constituted by the invisible reality that it signifies. I know this is highfalutin language. No, I don't. No, I get. I, hey, I get it. I've been having these conversations yeah. with you for six years now. So if you have a cheeseburger, it actually makes cheeseburgerness present. That is its own identity, cheeseburgerness. But that identity comes from the idea of the thing. And you have this one-to-one correspondence between the thing and the idea of the thing, just like you have one-to-one correspondence between the father and the son. And um, he takes it one 
further step, right? Because if you can express yourself, what does that mean for me? It means that you can express yourself. Well, yeah, but <laughs> what does it mean for me that you can you express can yourself? You can experience the way in which I express myself. Yes, exactly, right? <laughs> because you're expressing, stop expressing. Mm-hmm. What is it? Stop expressing yourself? Stop. No, there's something. Help, help, I'm being expressed. I don't know. Help, help, I'm being oppressed. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Sorry, I blew the joke. No, no, that's I'm, fine. I'm not nerdy enough to know those jokes, <laughs> those uh, money Python jokes. Um, actually, I probably am, but I'm just too ignorant to use them. If you can express yourself, that means I can take your expression into my mind, which means if I leave this room from podcasting with you, something of you is still in me, so to speak. Which is the same way we connect to God by the way Christ expressed himself. Amen, right? So if God can express himself in ways that are knowable to us, so Christ takes on matter, right? He's the kind of sacrament of sacraments, right? He's the sacrament of the Father and that he takes on flesh. Then we use that same pattern and sacramentalize Christ through the various things that the church uses. And then you take it to the next level and I can know you in my mind because you express yourself, which is actually already a participation in God's idea of you. And then I can carry that around. So what he says is a symbol, properly speaking, is the self-realization that's making real of a being in the other. Whoa. God can realize himself, make himself real Hmm. in us, just as he made himself real uh, in Christ. And so our job as Christians is to let Christ realize himself in us. We uh, we have to go to to, uh, Vesper soon, but... Um, you kind of got me on a path here that I would love to explore. Maybe if we could do this again, uh, this idea of Christ as the mediator, right? So I, I, now I'm thinking about what, what did all of this mean with Adam and Eve before the fall? Well, they had sort of, in a sense, more direct access to God than, than right. But did so, but what did that look like and how, what was sacrament, what was sacramental about themselves as opposed to us right so we need christ in order for fullness of you know reconciliation Mm -hmm. and fullness of of god but adam did not need christ at least before the fall yeah he wasn't fallen right so now we we've detached ourselves from god right as humanity and he gave us access again but we have to go through christ Right. And uh, I don't know, my mind's racing now about yeah. all of the... <laughs> there are a lot of people who speculate on what they call prelapsarian man right before the fall. Um, would, would They would have to have some sacramental existence, right? Because they were matter, they were material but That's fun to think about. Would it's they like... see God directly at that stage or not? And, you know, sometimes people try to say Adam and Eve were in a, like a... They were like teenagers and God was waiting to glorify them. Because if you read Genesis carefully, it talks about the tree of life and God wanted to give them access to the tree of life, but just not yet and not in their own terms. And so he was waiting to give them this higher level of divinized existence that we all talk about now, Mm -hmm. but that they grasped for it instead of waited for it. And that set up this other way of... I don't know if this is me being just a dumb guy, but, you know, we talk about the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? So I always thought that uh, they knew good because they knew God. God's good. Mm-hmm. They knew good. And so the only thing that they really knew when they ate the apple was evil. That was new to them. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you could say, you know, the angels at the fall, 
they can't repent because they had supernatural intellect. So mm-hmm. they, they weren't weighing the options and, and they, they didn't have the, uh, the blessing of ignorance, which is why they can't change their minds. Right. Their, their choice is final, which is why the fall of humanity comes from this kind of, they probably knew to some degree what they were doing more than your average you know, teenager in mm-hmm. America would. Well, now I'm prepared for the Christ life that we're about to receive. <laughs> well, that is because, <laughs> um, you know, you see where this takes us, symbols. Much more complicated than you think. But when you get it, you're like, God is realizing himself in us. But you have to be tuned in, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. incredibly important. We talk about this active participation, but it's not just active participation in the mass, but it's just active participation in, in humanity and, well, and God's being, power, like you said. to remake himself real in us. Yeah. yeah. And, that's and, why and, it's fundamentally passive in a way. You just say, yes, God, yes, God, yes, God. And the liturgy is like the best way to do that. But there are other ways. But if we're not doing the liturgy <laughs> the well, way we're supposed to be doing it. That's the privileged way. Right? It that's is, yeah. yeah. And and that's not to say we can't get there elsewhere, but it's just it's the easiest way. So make things easy for yourself and participate in the liturgy. Go get symbolized and be symbolized and let God realize himself in you. Well, this was delightful. And now my Who head... knew a Rana article could be interesting <laughs> and fun? Now my head is exploding. Let's so. go pray. You've been listening to an episode of Coffee Talk with the Liturgy Guys. Our theme music is Acoustic Blues by Jason Shaw, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. I I had too much coffee.